You are Locked On Horn Frogs. Your daily podcast on the TCU Horn Frogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Welcome to Locked On Horn Frogs, your daily TCU podcast. Uh, I'm Stephen Simcox, your host. Alongside me is Matt Jennings, great friend of the show. And we're going to discuss Sonny Dykes and TCU and being the head coach because as of this recording, that is still very much coming down the tracks, coming down the pipe, and it appears that they're going to make an announcement on Tuesday, according to Drew Davidson from the Forest Star Telegram and Jeremy Clark from 247 Sports, um, that it's official, it's done, we're ready to rock and roll. But first, uh, this afternoon, some huge news came down. And we'll, we'll talk about how this loosely kind of relates to TCU briefly in a moment. But this is huge news in the Big 12, um, provided that Oklahoma sticks around for another year or more time than that, depending on how that all shakes out with their move to the SEC. Lincoln Riley, uh, the Sooners lost Bedlam on Saturday night to Oklahoma State in a crazy game, 37 to 33. And there were a lot of rumors about Lincoln Riley and LSU. He shot those down in his postgame press conference. And then on Sunday afternoon, uh, he informed his team that he was headed to take the job at USC. So that's crazy, one. And Matt, I mean, like USC is still a really good job. And it's in the Pac-12. It's a place where you can win quickly. But I think we both sort of agreed the crazy part of this is just how quiet it was and how much should that surprise you that they were essentially able to kind of move in the shadows and get a guy like that uh, to take that job without any real fanfare until it actually happened. Yeah. The U S if, if the LSU uh, coaching search was on one end of the spectrum in that LSU has very much been very loud in and very vocal about who they've been going after Jimbo Fisher and Mel Tucker and Lincoln Riley USC is like on the, opposite end of the spectrum they were the one of the first jobs i think actually maybe the first power five job of the season to open this year and clay helton got fired and then it's been radio silence from la for most of the year and that's just something you don't see like even you know for for you know every other job this season like leaks happen there's ongoing reporting there's a sense of who teams are talking to and and who they're interested in usc before sunday like we got a couple we got a couple reports like hey usc might kick the tires on dave aranda and then dave aranda said hey i want to hang around at baylor and that was really the extent we had heard anything semi-concrete about them and so for them to pull this off so quickly and so quietly and to grab somebody with Lincoln Riley's resume and in the manner that they did and and as quietly and stealthily as it is really something you do not see very often and was very very impressive and it's super impressive also because like I feel like all these jobs everybody these jobs think uh, the boosters and the administrations think so highly of themselves as programs that like they kind of self-select themselves out of a lot of really legitimate candidates because you have to your job is of a certain standing where it's like, well, we have to hire a, we can't hire a guy who doesn't have power five experience. We're, we're, we're USC or we're LSU. We have to hire a power five coach. 
but we also want a guy who has championship pedigree. We also want a guy who's a playoff contender. It's like, okay, you've already like, like narrowed your list of possible candidates down a, a ton by saying that. And that's why, you know, LSU's in the situation they are. They wanted to get Jimbo Fisher. They wanted to get Mick and Riley and they're not getting those guys. And then they, so like, who do they go get now? Mark Stoops? I don't know. Not be a flashy hire in the same way. Whereas USC is one of the few jobs that has actually managed to pull this off where it's like, we believe we're a top 10 job, whatever. We're going to go get a guy who's been to the playoff. We're going to get a guy who's a power five coach, a guy who recruits at a top five, top 10 level. And they went out and they freaking did it, which is really impressive, especially when you consider like what USC has been over the last few years. So kudos to them. Um, Lincoln Riley is going to have a much easier job doing coaching at coaching in USC and um, recruiting Southern California and being the first choice for all the Southern California recruits uh, of which there are many blue chippers there. Um, and he's going to, his main competition in his conference is just going to be Oregon as opposed to when Oklahoma heads to the SEC in a couple of years and is going to have to compete with Alabama and LSU and Georgia and Florida and Auburn and, 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 and. Um, so in a way it's, you know, it's honestly a, and he gets to go live in Southern California instead of in Norman. Like, just frankly, <laughs> it's a nice move. It is. In a lot of ways, it makes sense. And that's one thing that's been floated out there. And we'll see. Like, in the next couple of days, there will be a lot of leaks from Oklahoma people about, oh, well, Lincoln actually wasn't, you know, the most loyal dude in the world, whatever. There will be stories that come out. Uh, but one thing that has sort of surfaced is that he wasn't a fan of the move to the SEC. Which, and I'll just kind of briefly get your thoughts on this, Matt. Uh, you know, the more I thought about that the last few days and really seeing kind of how they got pushed around a little bit by Baylor and Oklahoma State, and that might have been like a one-off thing. Like it might have just been a this season type of deal. But the way Oklahoma's built, like the what he's hung his hat on with explosive skill guys, I mean, you need that in the SEC, but you also really need like girth, <laughs> on the offense and defensive line. Um, and they've produced some good offensive linemen and put them in the NFL. But it is going to be uh, a step up in competition. And, you know, we've seen it be a benefit for A&M, but they're still a middle-of-the-pack SEC team. So I guess, like, from that perspective, okay, you end up at USC where you can compete for a conference title right away. It sort of does make sense for him, even though it's a weird – at best, I think it's a lateral move, but at this point, I think you could say that Oklahoma's a better job, even with the step up in competition they're going to have in the SEC. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. They they got pushed around by Oklahoma State. To say that they got pushed around by Oklahoma State, they got pushed around by Baylor. You know, Jim Knowles' defense, they were all over Caleb Williams on Saturday, and this is really, really impressive. And um, I got a little annoyed when Kirk Herbstreet after the game was like, oh, like in Oklahoma State, this isn't the most talented defense. These are blue collar guys. Like just like all these like euphemisms you use when you think that a team's not talented, um, which I think is unfair. I think Oklahoma State's an athletic and talented team. Let me put that out there. Um, I think that's important to note. Um, but I will say that Oklahoma, of the teams that run variations of the air raid, um, you know, or, or, or offenses with their roots in the air raid, at least um, they're by far the most physical version of that. Right. Like they don't run like simple, like inside zone, outside zone stuff. Like they run 
power and counter and they pull the guard around and they hit people in the mouth. And um, so if there was a team from the big 12 that I thought could, could hang in the, in the sec, like Oklahoma would be it. Um, But they, they, they've gotten, they've gotten pushed around in the trenches a little bit this year. And I think, I, I do think you're onto something a little bit there that that's the area where honestly, I don't think I, I don't think skill position talent is there's a big difference between Oklahoma and all the other teams in the SEC. But I think that not just the starting uh, offensive and defensive lines, but the depth at those position groups is different with the highest level SEC teams. And they could have gotten, um, they could have had a rough time uh, getting there. And I think uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how much that played into Lincoln Riley's calculus in terms of making this decision. But if it's a choice between doing that or getting to, again, go play in the Pac-12 where you're, you know, the, the most talented physical team you're going to face uh, every, uh, any, any given year is going to be Oregon, who you may not have to play until the conference title game. And then you only have to beat Alabama or Georgia or LSU or whoever in a one-game playoff scenario rather than going through the gauntlet of the SEC schedule. Um, I can see how that's a more attractive thing. So how does this relate to TCU, this Lincoln Riley news? Um, so Matt Kingle from Fort Worth Star-Telegram later, later in the afternoon on Sunday tweeted something to the effect of like, hey, something to keep an eye on. Sonny Dykes likes the Oklahoma job. Oklahoma has, you know, some interest in him, and there's nothing that's been officially announced at TCU. Now, I went on to write a column in the paper where essentially he said Sonny was a name on a list, and they had a brief conversation, but he's committed to TCU at this point. Um, and there's also been reporting out there that – the contract's been signed by Sonny and it's a done deal. Like it's good to go that they're going to get this done and get this announced. Um, and that was Jeremy Clark who had that earlier today, but Matt, my question to you, and you sort of made this point on Twitter, like how far would OU have to get down the list before they get to Sonny Dykes? Because I feel like there's a lot of TCU folks that think this was a, uh, a bunt situation like uh you know okay we didn't we didn't really we swung for the fences we didn't get anywhere so now we're just gonna try to move the guy from first to second and hope that we can you know get him around the home plate in a couple of swings um Oklahoma Sonny Dykes at Oklahoma sounds I think it could work at TCU but that just doesn't sound plausible at all it, what are your thoughts on that possibility yeah, that goes back to what I was saying, kind of with the USC, the caliber of job of USC, of Oklahoma, of LSU, these jobs where it's not just about finding a good coach. You got to find a coach that is a good coach and also like fits the, fits the bill of what those programs think of themselves, right? Winning the press conference should not matter and it's dumb, but it's the boosters money that you're spending to pay those contracts for the coach. And so ultimately like they do get a say at some point. And if you can't get the boosters on board and excited about a hire, it's not happening. So all that to say, if uh, Sonny Dykes has been 
let's call it a an underwhelming hire in the in the eyes of a lot of TCU fans. Yeah, how can you imagine how Oklahoma um, boosters and power brokers are going to react to Joe Castiglione being like, "Hey, what do y'all think about uh, what do y'all think about the Sunny Dykes?" They, like he would get laughed out of the room. He just would. And so, no, I never, I, I did not think that that was legitimate. Like if for whatever, you know, Mac Engel's more, more connected and has more sources than I do because he actually has sources at all. Um, so I don't, I don't believe he's, I don't think he's making anything up, but I do believe that um, if there was conversations, I would imagine that they were um, exploratory gauging interest in nature and nothing beyond that. And I don't, um, I don't think, uh, even if Sonny Dykes had not already signed his deal at TCU, he would not have gotten very far in that interview process. Not because I don't think Sonny Dykes is a good coach, because I do. And again, I said this last week, he was like my fourth choice on TCU's list of candidates. Um, I'm not trying to stump for the guy. I do think he's a pretty good coach. I think what he did at SMU is impressive, but you can't sell, let's go get the SMU head coach who has one double digit win season and four tries. Um, you can't sell that in Norman. You just can't. And so, yeah, I, when, when I saw Mac tweet that, I was just, I was like, I shrugged. I was like, okay, like, this is a, I guess we're going to have this conversation, but it, it I, I would have been flabbergasted, dumbfounded, awestruck, pick the adjective, uh, if anything concrete had come of it. Okay, so let's talk about the staff, because that's been a huge sort of sticking point with the Dykes hire. I think everyone agrees if this is going to work, it's going to come with uh, a pretty strong, you know, assistant level of assistant coaches, that kind of thing. Um, So we're starting to see that come together. And Jeremy, I'm sorry, like, I really try to be careful about sharing things that are behind the, the 247 Baywall, but I feel like this stuff has been widely reported enough now that I can you know, move forward with it and we can talk about it. Uh, but he and Billy Embody at the SMU site have confirmed that Rashad Samples is coming over. He coaches running backs, but Samp is really known for his recruiting prowess. Um, David Grew, receivers coach. Chierda Uzo-Dribe, defensive line. Um, and Garrett Riley, who's offensive coordinator, is expected to follow Dykes DCU. Also, Kaz Kazadi, strength and conditioning coach. Um, and then I also saw this from Drew Davidson as we're recording that there's a good chance Brian Carrington, who is the former director of recruiting at UT and is currently at USC, could be joining the staff as well, uh, which would be a big pull on the recruiting front as well. But let's focus on a couple of these guys. We'll focus on Rashad Samples first because that's someone who I've been kind of like banging the drum for. You need him if this is going to work. Um what is his involvement with his connections, his dad being a, a legendary DFW coach, the way he's able to build relationships with players, especially in the Metroplex? How does that raise, you think, the recruiting ceiling that TCU has, has shown in the past can be good? Um, does it potentially take it to another level with his involvement on, on the coaching staff? I absolutely think so. And I, and I honestly want your thoughts on this a little bit more, Stephen, because I won't pretend to be um, the expert on – on um the texas high school recruiting scene but i I, just briefly yeah no that's to me i i agree i think if the if the dykes hire is going to work they needed to they needed to get samples as well Uh, i think davison's uh drew's reporting as well that that 
uh, Carrington could also be coming along is huge. Um, and Samples and um, Jordan Blake, um, who's the recruiting coordinator at SMU currently, have also kind of made it uh, apparent on Twitter that they're a little bit of a package deal. And Blake has been a, a big part in that as well. So you've got a bunch of different pieces where I've said for a while that I feel like the greatest area of untapped potential for TCU is in recruiting, particularly um, just because of their proximity to talent in the Metroplex and the DFW area. Like you've got powerhouses and, and uh, high school programs that churn out division one talent and churn out blue chip talent um, uh, all throughout the Metroplex. Talking about DeSoto and Allen and Alito, South Lake Carroll, just just go down the list of just like programs that that again churn out high quality players at positions all over the field and i think if tcu um you know tcu's never going to build a fence around dfw um just you know texas and texas a&m and oklahoma and even some sec programs are are always going to dip into dfw but it's the second most talent rich area in the state behind houston um, if you can make yourself a super attractive option to the, the blue chip talent in that Metroplex, say, Hey, you can come play in a power conference. You can come play and compete for conference titles and playoff spots, um, and be 45 minutes, an hour from home. That's an attractive pitch. And they honestly were able to recruit, you know, the 2021 class notwithstanding the five classes before that were all top three in the big 12 in the 24 seven sports composite behind Texas and Oklahoma. And that was with Gary Patterson who just like, I think was a fine recruiter. He was not a gangbusters recruiter by any means. He wasn't a guy who was willing to necessarily play ball in the recruiting game, the way other, um, the way other guys are. And I think Sonny Dykes is like, as I, already identified hey this is our opportunity this is the way that we can create a talent advantage against the rest of the league and you know I always go back to I'm, I'm, I'm going on a tangent now a few years ago before he passed away I got a chance to interview Bobby Bowden when I was working for the now defunct website SEC country and he said something that like seemed really like simple and obvious at the time but I but like I've come to believe it more and more every year which was that He's like, I've always thought like, hey, if I've got better players than you, then I'm going to beat you. And if you got better players than me, then I'm, then you're going to beat me. And like, obviously, like Texas, the University of Texas exists. So that's not a hard and fast rule. <laughs> but um, in general, if you can have a talent advantage over your opponents more often than not, you just need competent coaching and you're going to win more often than not. And TCU has the opportunity to um, cultivate a talent advantage over um, everybody in the Big 12 that's not Texas and Oklahoma, and in the new the new look Big 12 over everyone that's probably not Houston. And if they can do that, which is looks like what they're prioritizing trying to do with this staff, that's an exciting thing. And I'm really I'm really interested to see if they're able to pull it off. Yeah. So the the samples thing is is really exciting, and I've I've shared some of the background before, but he's 26 years old, so he is young. Like almost rushed out of college. Um, his dad, Reginald, is a longtime coach at Duncanville, which is the biggest DSI, DISD school right now as far as like success. 
Um, I'd say at the 6A level in the past five years, the most successful programs have been Duncanville and North Shore. TCU's had, you know, a couple guys from North Shore come over in the last few seasons. Um, not a ton of guys from the Duncanville pipeline. But because, you know, Rashad has relationships with so many Metroplex coaches because of the respect level they have for his dad, um, he's been able to recruit at a high level. And he was – a re, like on campus, his title at UT, because he was at UT before SMU, was on campus recruiting coordinator slash assistant wide receivers coach. Um, and he made an impression enough there that they got him to SMU. And like within a year, he became the associate head coach. And a lot of that's on the backs of what he's done, just like connecting with kids and getting them, you know, in the building and the building relationships with them moving forward. Um, and this is not a new thing. Like this has always been a big, huge deal. Like if you are a college football coach in Texas, you have to have great relationships with Texas high school football coaches. But I would say there's been a real big emphasis lately. Like Jeff Schrader down at UTSA was a coach at Gilmer for a long time. Um, Joey McGuire just took the job at Tech and he was at uh, Cedar Hill forever. Um, and Matt Rule, like one of the first things he did when he got to Baylor was higher. Sean Bell, Joey McGuire, and David Wetzel, who were all, at the time, Texas high school football coaches, um, and Rule was an outsider, so he kind of needed that on a staff. But bottom line is, you need dudes like that if you're going to compete. And uh, Gary had great respect from, you know, the coaches in the state. I'm not saying he didn't. However, I think there's just some new energy that can be brought um, from, like, what samples and potentially Carrington could do that could be really beneficial for TCU. And I'll also briefly say, uh, you know, Kyle Skazadi is really well respected. I feel like strength and conditioning coaches, Matt, are almost like special team coaches in the NFL and that every one of them is, they say, oh yeah, they're great at their jobs. Like they're better than everyone else. And nobody really knows because it's just some, I think it's like a company line that people say, uh, but Kyle's, did some really great things at Baylor. Obviously, that was on Art Bryle staff, which I know, uh, I know what happened there. Um, and yeah, it wasn't great. And I know there's a lot of bad blood between, you know, that staff and Gary's staff. Um, but he's here, and he's going to bring, you know, whatever from a nutrition standpoint and an SNC standpoint to the table. Um, and I think like the excuse that a lot of fans bring, or I feel like it becomes an excuse a lot of fans bring if there's a lot of injuries, like, oh, yeah, it's about the strength and conditioning. But I will say, Matt, like, the injuries they've TCU's had over the last four years, um, I, I think it's more than just we follow the team closely. Like, it's, it's at a ridiculous level where maybe it's not all on the strength and conditioning staff, but it's worth questioning what's going on over there because guys just don't hold up. I mean, their bodies are just not holding up for an entire season. I think that's a fair point. I had this conversation with some folks on Twitter a few years back. And at the time I was more on the side of like injuries are injuries are fairly random a and B um, criticizing strength and conditioning is, is an easy mark for fans when they're not happy with the way some things are going and they need something to blame, but they can't put their finger on exactly what kind of exactly what you're talking about with strength and conditioning or with specialties coordinators and stuff like that. Like it's just, it's something to blame 
where you can kind of make the data that you see say whatever you want, right? So I haven't looked into the data super closely about like TCU's rates of injuries and, and lengths of injuries versus other teams. Um, I think it's a question that's worth asking. And if you can, you can bring in a new strength and conditioning staff and, and you, get, you get better results, then that's great. I will say, I think, and this is another area that I think that Sonny Dykes is going to be different than Gary Patterson for better or worse. I think the, the, uh, the magnification on the injuries is more, has been more so the last couple of years, one, because they're losing games, but two, because there's no transparency about what the injuries are. And so everything, it's super hard to track like what a guy's injury is and like what, even know what a reasonable time frame to expect a guy to come back is because everything is like, oh, he's got an injury. He might be back. He might not be back. Oh, he's actually out for the season. Oh, we're going to see if he's ready to go this week. Like it was all very, um, very hard to pin down with Gary, which was by design because he, to his credit, was obscenely prepared about his opponents and he read everything about his opponents. And so by extension, he was like, the information that they're just giving out there in their injury reports, I'm going to take that and I'm going to use that in my game planning. I'm not going to offer that freely to other teams. That was his mindset. For better or worse, that was what he wanted to do. But it also brought on more criticism for him and his strength conditioning, pro- strength and conditioning program because there's no accountability and there's no transparency about like what reasonable expectations are for like what a, what a guy's actual injury is, how long it should take for him to get out, um, what the like what caused it. All of that was like behind a firewall, right? And so if nothing else, Sunny Dykes has a reputation for being a little bit more open with the media, allowing some more access, being a little bit more transparent. Every college coach is going to be a little bit coy about injuries all the time, and that's fine. But I think that will kind of take a little bit of the spotlight off of that, if nothing else, because when a guy gets hurt, it's going to be like, oh, he has a high ankle, you know, he has a high ankle sprain. He's out for the appropriate amount of time that you would think that it would be for a high ankle sprain, not oh, well, so-and-so is banged up in week two. We'll see if he can go next week. And then you come to find out eight weeks later, oh, he had, you know, a torn, you know, he had a torn ACL and he's been out for the season. Well, then why are we having this conversation? You know what I'm saying? That's, again, a very inside, very media, uh, former media person complaint to have, but I'm excited to, to have a different experience there. No, it's, it is a good point. I think, like, having a more media-friendly environment would be good for the brand and for the program in general uh, okay so final thing for you matt the defensive coordinator hire we don't really have a lot of clarity on who they might target or where, what direction they might go um but i mean in my mind like this is arguably the most critical piece of the staff because sonny's been able to score points wherever he's been i don't think that's going to be an issue um like what do you feel or what's kind of your feeling on how much of a splash they need to make at, at that spot in the um, staff because you, you need a strong defense. And you're also in a, a, an opportunity where you really have to rebuild this defense because what they put out there this year was not anywhere close to what we saw in the past from, uh, from a Gary Patterson team. I think it's very important. I once again will say I think winning the press conference is overrated. So I don't necessarily think a splashy hire is necessary. If you get a splashy hire, that also ends up being a good hire. And that's fine. Kind of like what we're talking about the media thing, like the media friendliness is nice for our perspective, 
if you win, I kind of don't, I don't, I don't have no feelings about your media policy, but guess what? If you win a lot of games, I don't, it's going to matter less. Right. And that's the thing. If you, if you play really good defense, it really doesn't matter what people graded your defensive coordinator or hire as is the beginning or whether it was an exciting name or a name that people knew. I do think it's an important one. I think it needs to be somebody who knows how to defend the style of offense that you play in the big 12 that you face in the big 12 often, which is going to be pace and space. It's going to spread you out. You're going to go tempo. Um, uh, so that needs to be some, that needs to be a consideration. And um, it needs to be someone in my opinion, who can kind of get the defensive line in shape as we've talked about before. I think that's been the biggest weakness for them. Uh, certainly this season, if they can get the defensive line uh, to the point where they can control the line of scrimmage again, where they can get after the, they can really get after and affect the, the opposing quarterback. And they're not just getting run over and gashed in the run game. Then I think that is going to put them in a much better position. Um, in terms of names, I don't pretend to have to have researched uh, the, those candidates um, enough. Um, I made the joke on Twitter on Saturday. Uh, you know, TCU. You know, make Jim Knowles uh, name his price challenge. Um, I would love that. Again, just based on his uh, uh, the, the performance of that defensive line with, as Kirk Herbstreit would would call them, those blue collar guys. You know, um, but their performance against Oklahoma on Saturday was just so impressive. And so, um, and they've and they've done a really good job developing defensive line recently, anyway. And so. Uh, so yeah, I would say um, if you can get Jim Knowles to, to go in conference, then great. Uh, beyond that, um, I need to look into the other names. Um, but no, I agree. It's, it's, it's an important hire. I think Jeremiah Donati and the powers that be at TCU should make sure that uh, Sunny Dex has as much money as he needs to throw at whatever defensive coordinator he wants um, and make it happen. Because I agree. I don't, I'm not worried about the offense. Uh, as long as the defense is, um, can be average to pretty good, I think they're going to be in pretty good shape. I think so too. And uh, man, I am really excited about this off season, which is weird to say because they're coming off a real disaster of a year going five and seven. Um, but like, there's just, there's some new blood coming in Matt, and it's been a long time since that's been the case. Exactly. It's like change, change is different and different is exciting. Whether it's going to be good or not, we don't know. But it's just, it's going to be different stuff to talk about rather than um, the way we've had it the last few years. We're, you know, I am withholding judgment. I have all the same reservations that a lot of people have about, um, about what, what Sunny Dex has done at his previous stops, and I get it. I'm withholding judgment, and I'm, re- re- I'm choosing cautious optimism for now based on all the stuff we've talked about offense being good, the recruiting staff he's putting together. Um, also on that front, um, also this is also from Jeremy, but it sounds like they're retaining Malcolm Kelly and Paul Gonzalez, which were the two, two of the three names that we talked about previously and two names that I think also uh, two are the strongest recruiters, recruiters on the current TCU staff. So again, like recruiting, offensive philosophy, marketability, um, you know, really um, – you know, branding and NIL and the transfer portal, all these things that TCU has not done well recently. Um, there's reason to be cautious and optimistic that those things will be better. And, um, and that's the great thing about the off season. We don't get to be proven wrong about those things until next August. That's right. That is, that is uh, that's absolutely correct. Okay. Well, 
I want to extend my thanks to Matt Jennings, who has been with us all season long, every week. And we're going to check in with Matt plenty during the offseason, provided he still wants to talk to me. Uh, but I, I'm thankful that he, you know, takes some time late at night on Sundays to record this podcast with me. Um, and yeah, it's been fun. It's been a tumultuous year, but as Matt said, we get Sunny Dykes now, and we'll see how that era shakes out. We'll be here covering it regardless. This is Lockdown Horn Frogs, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day.